Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm so glad you chose to be here tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. But before we do, let's give ourselves some time to recenter. Let's try some visual breathing tonight. Imagine there's a little ball of light in your belly. It can be any color you wish. Inhale and watch that light glow brighter, illuminating your whole body. Now exhale and see it grow dimmer again. Each time you breathe in, feel the warmth and see how much of your body you can light up. Inhaling. And exhaling. Last time you were here, Mr. Rochester found Jane and Adele wandering in the grounds and began to tell Jane about his relationship with his ward. He had been having an affair with a French opera singer, and one evening he was waiting in her hotel room for her to return. Her carriage pulled up in the front of the building, and when she was followed in by a gentleman, Mr. Rochester hid himself on the balcony, later emerging, and ignoring her pleas, he gave her a final sum of money and left, never to see her again. Some years later, however, she wrote to him that she had borne a child from their relationship, and then later, he heard she'd abandoned this child while chasing a new fling. Seeing that the girl was now in need of stability, he agreed to become her guardian and brought her to live in England. He admitted, however, he did not see any resemblance to himself, and he does not truly believe that she is his daughter. Jane was awoken that night by an alarming, demonic laugh outside her door. Terrified, she shouted, who's there? And heard steps retreating up the gallery, intending to find Mrs. Fairfax. She stepped out into the hall to find it thick with smoke coming from Mr. Rochester's chamber. She burst into his room. His bed was aflame and he was lying in it, apparently passed out from the smoke. She doused the bed in all the water she could find and when he awoke, quite in shock, She explained all that had happened. When she mentioned that she thought Grace Poole could have been the owner of the laugh, he seemed in agreement, and they shared a moment before he left in search of the servant, and Jane returned to her chamber. And so, we pick back up tonight with Jane in high anticipation at seeing Mr. Rochester the next morning. So, just lie back and relax as I turn to the next page of Jane Eyre. Chapter 16 I both wished and feared to see Mr. Rochester on the day which followed this sleepless night. I wanted to hear his voice again, yet feared to meet his eye. 
During the early part of the morning, I momentarily expected his coming. He was not in the frequent habit of entering the schoolroom, but he did step in for a few minutes sometimes, and I had the impression that he was sure to visit it that day. But the morning passed, just as usual. Nothing happened to interrupt the quiet course of Adele's studies. Only soon after breakfast, I heard some bustle in the neighborhood of Mr. Rochester's chamber. Mrs. Fairfax's voice and Leah's and the cook's, that is, John's wife and even John's own gruff tones. There were exclamations of, What a mercy master was not burnt in his bed! And, It is always dangerous to keep a candle lit at night. And, How providential that he had presence of mind to think of the water jug! And, I wonder he waked nobody etc. To much confabulation succeeded a sound of scrubbing and setting to rights, and when I passed the room in going downstairs to dinner, I saw through the open door that all was again restored to complete order, only the bed was stripped of its hangings. Leah stood up in the window seat, rubbing the panes of glass dimmed with smoke. I was about to address her, for I wished to know what account had been given of the affair. But on advancing, I saw a second person in the chamber, a woman sitting on a chair by the bedside and sewing rings to a new curtain. That woman was no other than Grace Paul. There she sat, staid and taciturn looking as usual, in her brown stuff gown, her check apron, white handkerchief, and cap. She was intent on her work, in which her whole thoughts seemed absorbed. On her hard forehead and in her commonplace features was nothing either of the paleness or desperation one would have expected to see marking the countenance of a woman who had attempted murder and whose intended victim had followed her last night to her lair and, as I believed, charged her with the crime she wished to perpetrate. I was amazed, confounded. She looked up while I still gazed at her. No start, no increase or failure of color betrayed emotion, consciousness of guilt, or fear of detection. She said, good morning, miss in her usual phlegmatic and brief manner, and taking up another ring and more tape, went on with her sewing. I will put her to some test, thought I. Such absolute impenetrability is past comprehension. Good morning, Grace, I said. Has anything happened here? I thought I heard the servants all talking together a while ago. Only Master had been reading in his bed last night, she replied. He fell asleep with his candle lit and the curtains got on fire. But fortunately, he woke before the bedclothes or the woodwork caught and contrived to quench the flames with water in the ewer. Strange affair. I said in a low voice, then, looking at her fixedly, did Mr. Rochester wake nobody? Did no one hear him move? She again raised her eyes to me, 
and this time there was something of consciousness in their expression. She seemed to examine me warily. Then she answered, The servants sleep so far off, you know, miss. They would not be likely to hear. Mrs. Fairfax's room and yours are the nearest to Master's, but Mrs. Fairfax said she heard nothing. When people get elderly, they often sleep heavy. She paused and then added with a sort of assumed indifference, but still in a marked and significant tone. But you were young, miss, and I should say a light sleeper. Perhaps you may have heard a noise. I did, said I, dropping my voice, so that Leah, who was still polishing the panes, could not hear me. And at first I thought it was Pilot, but Pilot cannot laugh, and I'm certain I heard a laugh, and a strange one. She took a new needle full of thread, waxed it carefully, threaded her needle with a steady hand, and then observed with perfect composure. It is hardly likely Master would laugh, I should think, Miss, when he was in such danger. You must have been dreaming. I was not dreaming, I said, with some warmth, for her brazen coolness provoked me. Again, she looked at me with the same scrutinizing and conscious eye. Have you told Master you heard that laugh? She inquired. I have not had the opportunity of speaking to him this morning, I replied. You did not think of opening your door and looking out into the gallery, she further asked. She appeared to be cross-questioning me, attempting to draw from me information unawares. The idea struck me that if she discovered I knew or suspected her guilt, she would be playing of some of her malignant pranks on me. I thought it advisable to be on my guard. On the contrary, said I, I bolted my door. Then you are not in the habit of bolting your door every night before you get into bed. Fiend, I thought. She wants to know my habits, that she may lay her plans accordingly. Indignation again prevailed over prudence. I replied sharply, Hitherto I have often omitted to fasten the bolt, I did not think it necessary. I was not aware any danger or annoyance was to be dreaded at Thornfield Hall. But in future, and I laid marked stress on the words, I shall take good care to make all secure before I venture to lie down. It'll be wise to do so, was her answer. This neighborhood is as quiet as any I know, and I never heard of the hall being attempted by robbers since it was a house. Though there were hundreds of pounds worth of plate in the plate closet, as well known. And you see, for such a large house, there are very few servants, because Master has never lived here much, and when he does come, being a bachelor, he needs little waiting on, but I always think it best to err on the safe side. A door is soon fastened, and it is as well to have a drawn bolt between one and any mischief that might be about. A deal of people, miss, are for trusting all to Providence, but I dare say Providence will not dispense with the means though he often blesses them when they are used discreetly. And here she closed her harangue, a long one for her, and uttered with the demureness of a Quaker. I still stood 
absolutely dumbfounded at what appeared to me her miraculous self-possession and most inscrutable hypocrisy when the cook entered. Mrs. Poole, she said, addressing Grace, the servant's dinner will soon be ready. Will you come down? No, Grace replied. Just put my pint of porter and a bit of pudding on a tray. I'll carry it upstairs. You'll have some meat, asked the cook. Just a morsel and a taste of cheese, that's all. And the porridge? Never mind it at present. I shall be coming down before tea time. I'll make it myself. The cook here turned to me, saying that Mrs. Fairfax was waiting for me, so I departed. I hardly heard Mrs. Fairfax's account of the curtain conflagration during dinner, so much was I occupied in puzzling my brains over the enigmatical character of Grace Poole, and still more in pondering the problem of her position at Thornfield and questioning why she had not been given into custody that morning, or at the very least, dismissed from her master's service. He had almost as much as declared his conviction of her criminality last night. What mysterious cause withheld him from accusing her? Why had he enjoined me, too, to secrecy? It was strange, a bold, vindictive, and haughty gentleman seemed somehow in the power of one of the meanest of his dependents, so much in her power that even when she lifted her hand against his life, he dared not openly charge her with the attempt, much less punish her for it. Had Grace been young and handsome, I should have been tempted to think that tenderer feelings than prudence or fear influenced Mr. Rochester in her behalf, but hard-favoured and matronly as she was, the idea could not be admitted. Yet, I reflected, she had been young once, her youth would be contemporary with her master's, Mrs. Fairfax told me once she had lived here many years. I don't think she can ever have been pretty, but for aught I know, she may possess originality and strength of character to compensate for the want of personal advantages. Mr. Rochester is an amateur of the decided and eccentric. Grace is eccentric at least. What if a former caprice, a freak very possible to a nature so sudden and headstrong as his, has delivered him into her power, and now she exercises over his actions a secret influence, the result of his own indiscretion, which he cannot shake off and dare not disregard? But having reached this point of conjecture, Mrs. Poole's square, flat figure and uncomely, dry, even coarse face recurred so distinctly to my mind's eye that I thought, no, impossible. My supposition cannot be correct. Yet, suggested the secret voice which talks to us in our own hearts. You are not beautiful either. Perhaps Mr. Rochester approves you. At any rate, you have often felt as if he did. And last night, remember his words? Remember his look? Remember his voice? I well remembered all. Language glance and tone seemed at the moment vividly renewed. I was now in the schoolroom, 
Adele was drawing. I bent over her and directed her pencil. She looked up with a sort of start. What is the matter, mademoiselle? said she. Your fingers tremble like a leaf, and your cheeks are as red as cherries. I'm hot, Adele, with stooping. She went on sketching. I went on thinking. I hasten to drive from my mind the hateful notion that I have been conceiving respecting Grace Poole. It disgusted me. I compared myself with her and found we were different. Bessie Levin had said I was quite a lady, and she spoke truth. I was a lady, and now I looked much better than I did when Bessie saw me. I had more color, more flesh, more life, more vivacity, because I had brighter hopes and keener enjoyments. Evening approaches, said I, as I looked towards the window. I have never heard Mr. Rochester's voice or step in the house today. Surely I shall see him before night. I feared the meeting in the morning. Now I desire it, because expectation has been so long baffled that it has grown impatient. When dusk actually closed, and when Adele left me to go and play in the nursery with Sophie, I did most keenly desire it. I listened for the bell to ring below. I listened for Leah coming up with a message. I fancied sometimes I heard Mr. Rochester's own tread, and I turned to the door, expecting it to open and admit him. The door remained shut. Darkness only came in through the window. Still, it was not late. He often sent for me at seven and eight o'clock, and it was yet but six. Surely I should not be wholly disappointed tonight, when I had so many things to say to him. I wanted again to introduce the subject of Grace Paul and to hear what he would answer. I wanted to ask him plainly if he really believed it was she who had made last night's hideous attempt, and if so, why he kept her wickedness a secret. It little mattered whether my curiosity irritated him. I knew the pleasure of vexing and soothing him by turns. It was one I chiefly delighted in, and sure, instinct always prevented me from going too far. Beyond the verge of provocation, I never ventured. On the extreme brink, I liked well to try my skill, retaining every minute form of respect, every propriety of my station, still meet him in an argument without fear or uneasy restraint. This suited both him and me. A tread creaked on the stairs at last. Leah made her appearance, but it was only to intimate that tea was ready in Mrs. Fairfax's room. There I repaired, glad at least to go downstairs for that brought me, I imagined, nearer to Mr. Rochester's presence. You must want your tea, said the good lady as I joined her. You ate so little at dinner, I'm afraid, she continued. You are not well today. You look flushed and feverish. Ah, quite well, I replied. I never felt better. Then you must prove it by evincing a good appetite. Will you fill the teapot while I knit off this needle? Having completed her task, she rose to draw down the blind, which she hitherto kept up, by the way. I suppose of making the most of daylight, though dusk was now fast deepened into total obscurity. 
It is fair tonight, said she as she looked through the panes. Though not starlight, Mr. Rochester has on the whole had a favorable day for his journey. Journey? Is Mr. Rochester gone anywhere? I did not know he was out, I said. Oh, he set off the moment he had breakfasted. He has gone off to the Lees, Mr. Ashton's place, ten miles off on the other side of Millcote. I believe there is quite a party assembled there. Lord Ingram, Sir George Lynn, Colonel Dent and others. Do you expect him back tonight? I asked. No, nor tomorrow either. I should think he is very likely to stay a week or more. When these fine, fashionable people get together, they are so surrounded by elegance and gaiety, so well provided with, that all can please and entertain. They are in no hurry to separate. Gentlemen especially are often in request on such occasions, and Mr. Rochester is so talented so lively in society that I believe he is a general favorite. The ladies are very fond of him, though you would not think his appearance calculated to recommend him particularly in their eyes, but I suppose his acquirements and abilities, perhaps his wealth and good blood make amends for any little fault of look. Are there ladies at the Lees? I inquired. There are the Mrs. Ashton and her three daughters. Very elegant young ladies indeed. And there are the Honorable Blanche and Mary Ingram. Most beautiful women, I suppose. Indeed, I have seen Blanche six or seven years since, and she was a girl of 18. She came here to a Christmas ball and party Mr. Rochester gave. You should have seen the dining room that day. How richly it was decorated. How brilliantly lit up. I should think there were 50 ladies and gentlemen present, all of the first country families, and Miss Ingram was considered the belle of the evening. You saw her, you say, Mrs. Fairfax. What was she like? Yes, I saw her. The dining room doors were thrown open, and as it was Christmas time, the servants were allowed to assemble in the hall to hear some of the ladies sing and play. Mr. Rochester would have me come in, and I sat down in a quiet corner and watched them. I never saw a more splendid scene. The ladies were magnificently dressed. Most of them, at least most of the younger ones, looked handsome. But Miss Ingram was certainly the queen. And what was she like? I asked. Tall, fine bust, sloping shoulders, long, graceful neck, olive complexion, dark, and clear, noble features, eyes rather like Mr. Rochester's, large and black, but as brilliant as her jewels. And then she had such a fine head of hair, raven black and so becomingly arranged, a crown of thick plaits behind, and in the front, the longest glossiest curls I ever saw. She was dressed in pure white. An amber-colored scarf was passed over her shoulder and across her front, tied at the side and descending in long, fringed ends below her knee. She wore an amber-colored flower, too, in her hair. It contrasted well with the jetty mass of her curls. She was greatly admired, of course, I said. Yes, indeed, and not only for her beauty, 
but for her accomplishments. She was one of the ladies who sang. A gentleman accompanied her on the piano. She and Mr. Rochester sang a duet. Mr. Rochester, I was not aware he could sing. Oh, he has a fine bass voice and an excellent taste for music. And Miss Ingram, what sort of a voice had she? Very rich and powerful one. She sang delightfully. It was a treat to listen to her. And she played afterwards. I'm no judge of music, but Mr. Rochester is. And I heard him say her execution was remarkably good. And this beautiful and accomplished lady, she is not yet married. It appears not. I fancy neither she nor her sisters have very large fortunes. Old Lord Ingram's estates were chiefly entailed, and the eldest son came in for everything almost. But I wonder no wealthy nobleman or gentleman has taken a fancy to her. Mr. Rochester, for instance. He is rich, is he not? Oh, yes. But you see, there is a considerable difference in age. Mr. Rochester is nearly 40. She is but 25. What of that? More unequal matches are made every day, I said. True, yet I should scarcely fancy Mr. Rochester would entertain an idea of the sort. But you eat nothing. You have scarcely tasted since you began tea, said Mrs. Fairfax. No, I'm too thirsty to eat. Will you let me have another cup? I was about again to revert to the probability of a union between Mr. Rochester and the beautiful Blanche, but Adele came in, and the conversation was turned into another channel. When once more alone, I reviewed the information I had got, looked into my heart, examined its thoughts and feelings, and endeavoured to bring back with a strict hand such had been straying through imagination's boundless and trackless waste into the safe fold of common sense. Memory having given her evidence of the hopes, wishes, and sentiments I had been cherishing since last night, of the general state of mind in which I had indulged for nearly a fortnight past. Reason having come forward and told in her own quiet way a plain, unvarnished tale, showing how I had rejected the real and rabidly devoured the ideal. I pronounced judgment to this effect, that a greater fool than Jane Eyre had never breathed the breath of life, that a more fantastic idiot had never suffated herself on sweet lies and swallowed poison as if it were nectar. You, I said to myself, a favorite with Mr. Rochester. You, gifted with the power of pleasing him. You, of importance to him in any way. Go, your folly sickens me. And you have derived pleasure from occasional tokens of preference, equivocal tokens shown by a gentleman of family and a man of the world to a dependent and a novice. How dared you, poor stupid dupe? Could not even self-interest make you wiser? You repeated to yourself this morning the brief scene of last night. Cover your face and be ashamed. He said something in praise of your eyes, did he? Blind puppy. Open their bleared lids 
and look on your own accursed senselessness. It does good to no woman to be flattered by her superior, who cannot possibly intend to marry her, and it is madness in all women to let a secret love kindle within them, which, if unreturned and unknown, must devour the life that feeds it, and if discovered and responded to, must lead deceptively into miry wilds whence there is no extrication. Listen then, Jane Eyre, to your sentence. Tomorrow, place the glass before you and draw in chalk your own picture. Faithfully, without softening one defect, omit no harsh line, smooth away no displeasing irregularity, write under it, portrait of a governess, disconnected, poor and plain. Afterwards, take a piece of smooth ivory, you have one prepared in your drawing box, Take your palette, mix your freshest, finest, clearest tints. Choose your most delicate camel hair pencils. Delineate carefully the loveliest face you can imagine. Paint it in your softest shades and sweetest lines according to the description given by Mrs. Fairfax of Blanche Ingram. Remember the raven ringlets, the lovely eye. What? You revert to Mr. Rochester as a model. Order. No snivel, no sentiment, no regret. I will endure only sense and resolution. Recall the august yet harmonious liniments, the Grecian neck, and bust, let the round and dazzling arm be visible and the delicate hand, omit neither diamond ring nor gold bracelet, portray faithfully the attire, aerial lace and glistening satin, graceful scarf and golden rose, call it Blanche an accomplished lady of rank. Whenever in future you should chance to fancy Mr. Rochester thinks well of you, take out these two pictures and compare them. Say, Mr. Rochester might probably win that noble lady's love if he chose to strive for it. Is it likely he would waste a serious thought on this indignant and insignificant plebeian. I'll do it, I resolved, and having framed this determination, I grew calm and fell asleep. I kept my word. An hour or two sufficed to sketch my own portrait in crayons, and in less than a fortnight I had completed an ivory miniature of an imaginary Blanche Ingram. It looked a lovely face enough, and when compared with the real head in chalk, the contrast was as great as self-control could desire. I derived benefit from the task. It had kept my head and hands employed, and had given force and fixedness to the new impressions I wished to stamp indelibly on my heart. Ere long, I had reason to congratulate myself on the course of wholesome discipline to which I had thus forced my feelings to submit. Thanks to it, I was able to meet subsequent occurrences with a decent calm, which, had they found me unprepared, I should probably have been unequal to maintain, even externally. 
Chapter 17 A week passed, and no news arrived of Mr. Rochester. Ten days, and still he did not come. Mrs. Fairfax said she should not be surprised if he were to go straight from the Lees to London, and thence to the continent, and not show his face again at Thornfield for a year to come. He had not unfrequently quitted it in a manner quite as abrupt and unexpected. When I heard this, I was beginning to feel a strange chill and failing at the heart. I was actually permitting myself to experience a sickening sense of disappointment. But, rallying my wits, I recollected my principles and I at once called my sensations to order. And it was wonderful how I got over the temporary blunder, how I cleared up the mistake of supposing Mr. Rochester's movements, a matter in which I had any cause to take a vital interest. Not that I humbled myself by a notion of inferiority, On the contrary, I just said to myself, you have nothing to do with the master of Thornfield further than to receive the salary he gives you for teaching his protégé, and to be grateful for such respectful and kind treatment as, if you do your duty, you have a right to expect at his hands. Be sure that is the only tie he seriously acknowledges between you and him. So don't make him the object of your fine feelings, your raptures, agonies, and so forth. He is not of your order. Keep to your caste and be too self-respecting to lavish the love of the whole heart, soul, and strength where such a gift is not wanted and would be despised. I went on with my day's business, tranquilly, but ever and anon, vague suggestions kept wandering across my brain of reasons why I should leave Thornfield, and I kept involuntarily framing advertisements and pondering conjectures about new situations These thoughts I did not think to check. They may germinate and bear fruit if they could. Mr. Rochester had been absent upwards of a fortnight when the post brought Mrs. Fairfax a letter. It is from the master, said she as she looked at the direction. Now I suppose we shall know whether we are to expect his return or not. And while she broke the seal and perused the document, I went on taking my coffee. We were at breakfast. It was hot, and I attributed to that circumstance a fiery glow which suddenly rose to my face. Why my hand shook and why I involuntarily spilt half the contents of my cup into my saucer, I did not choose to consider. Well, I sometimes think we are too quiet, but we run a chance of being busy enough now for a little while at least, said Mrs. Fairfax, still holding the note before her spectacles. Ere I permitted myself to request an explanation, I tied the string of Adele's pinafore, which happened to be loose, having helped her also to another bun and refilled her mug with milk. I said, nonchalantly, Mr. Rochester is not likely to return soon, I suppose? Indeed he is. In three days, he says. That will be the next Thursday, and not alone either. I don't know how many of the fine people at the Lees are coming with him. He sends directions, 
for all the best bedrooms to be prepared and the library and drawing rooms are to be cleaned out and to get more kitchen hands from the George Inn at Millcote and from wherever else I can. And the ladies will bring their maids and the gentlemen their valets so we shall have a full house of it. And Mrs. Fairfax swallowed her breakfast and hastened away to commence operations. The three days were, as she foretold, busy enough. I had thought all the rooms at Thornfield beautifully clean and well arranged, but it appears I was mistaken. Three women were got to help, and such scrubbing, such brushing, such washing of paint and beating of carpets, such taking down and putting up of pictures, such polishing of mirrors and lusters, such lighting of fires in bedrooms, such airing of sheets and feather beds on hearths, I never beheld, either before or since. Adele ran quite wild in the midst of it. The preparations for company and the prospect of their arrival seemed to throw her into ecstasies. She would have Sophie to look over all her toilettes, as she called frocks, to furbish up any that were passé and to air and arrange the new. For herself, she did nothing but caper about in the front chambers, jumping on and off the bedsteads and lie on the mattresses and piled up bolsters and pillows before the enormous fires roaring in the chimneys. From school duties, she was exonerated. Mrs. Fairfax had pressed me into her service, and I was all day in the storeroom, helping or hindering her and the cook, learning to make custards and cheesecakes and French pastry, to trust game and garnish dessert dishes. The party were expected to arrive on Thursday afternoon, in time for dinner at six. During the intervening period, I had no time to nurse Kimaras, and I believe I was as active and cheerful as anybody, Adele accepted. Still, now and then, I received a dampening check to my cheerfulness and was, in spite of myself, thrown back on the region of doubts and portents and dark conjectures. This was when I chanced to see the third-story staircase door, which as of late had always been kept locked, open slowly and give passage to the form of Grace Poole, in a prim cap, white apron, and handkerchief. When I watched her glide along the gallery, her quiet tread muffled in a list slipper, when I saw her look into the bustling, topsy-turvy bedrooms, just say a word, perhaps, to the charwoman, about the proper way to polish a grate, or clean a marble mantelpiece, or take stains from papered walls, and then pass on. She would thus descend to the kitchen once a day, eat her dinner, smoke a moderate pipe on the hearth, and go back, carrying her pot of porter with her for her private solace in her own gloomy upper haunt. Only one hour in the twenty-four did she pass with her fellow servants below. All the rest of her time was spent in some low-sealed oaken chamber of the second story. There she sat and sewed, and probably laughed drearily to herself 
as companionless as a prisoner in his dungeon. The strangest thing of all was that not a soul in the house except me noticed her habits or seemed to marvel at them. No one discussed her position or employment. No one pitied her solitude or isolation. I once, indeed, overheard part of a dialogue between Leah and one of the charwomen, of which Grace formed the subject. Leah had been saying something I had not caught, and the charwoman remarked, She gets good wages, I guess. Yes, said Leah. I wish I had as good, not that mine are to complain of. There's no stinginess at Thornfield, but they're not one-fifth the sum Mrs. Paul receives, and she's laying by. She goes every quarter to the bank at Milko. I should not wonder, but she has saved enough to keep her independence if she liked to leave. But I suppose she's got used to the place, and then she's not forty yet, and strong and able for anything. It's too soon for her to give up business. She's a good hand, I dare say, said the charwoman. Ah, she understands what she has to do. Nobody better, rejoined Leah significantly. And it is not everyone who could fill her shoes, not for all the money she gets. That it is not, was the reply. I wonder whether the master... The charwoman was going on. But here, Leah turned and perceived me, and she instantly gave her companion a nudge. Doesn't she know? I heard the woman whisper. Leah shook her head, and the conversation was of course dropped. All I had gathered from it amounted to this, that there was a mystery at Thornfield, and that from participation in that mystery... I was purposely excluded. Thursday came. All work had been completed the previous evening. Carpets were laid down. Bed hangings festooned. Radiant white counterpanes spread. Tables arranged. Furniture rubbed. Flowers piled in vases. Both chambers and saloons looked as fresh and bright as hands could make them. The hall, too, was scoured, and the great carved clock, as well as the steps and banisters of the staircase, were polished to the brightness of glass. In the dining room, the sideboard flashed resplendent with plate. In the drawing room and boudoir, Vases of exotics bloomed on all sides. Afternoon arrived. Mrs. Fairfax assumed her best black satin gown, her gloves and gold watch, for it was her part to receive the company, to conduct the ladies to their rooms, etc. Adele, too, would be dressed though I had thought she had little chance of being introduced to the party that day at least. However, to please her, I allowed Sophie to apparel her in one of her short, full muslin frocks. For myself, I had no need to make any change. I should not be called upon to quit my sanctum of the schoolroom, for a sanctum it had now become to me a very pleasant refuge in time of trouble. It had been a mild, serene spring day, one of those days which, towards the end of March or the beginning of April, rise, shining over the earth as heralds of summer. It was drawing to an end now, but the evening was even warm and I sat at work in the schoolroom with the window open. It gets late, said Mrs. Fairfax, entering in rustling state. I'm glad I ordered dinner an hour after the time Mr. Rochester mentioned, 
for it is past six now. I have sent John down to the gates to see if there is anything on the road. One can see a long way off from thence in the direction of Millcote. She went to the window. Here he is, said she. Well, John, she called, leaning out. Any news? They're coming, ma'am, was the answer. They'll be here in ten minutes. Adele flew to the window. I followed, taking care to stand on one side, so that, screened by the curtain, I could see without being seen. The ten minutes John had given seemed very long, but at last wheels were heard. Four equestrians galloped up the drive, and after them came two open carriages. Fluttering veils and waving plumes filled the vehicles. Two of the cavaliers were young, dashing-looking gentlemen. The third was Mr. Rochester on his black horse, Mesrour, pilot bounding before him. At his side rode a lady, he and she were the first of the party. Her purple riding habit almost swept the ground. Her veil streamed long on the breeze, mingling with its transparent folds and gleaming through them shone rich, raven ringlets. Miss Ingram, said Mrs. Fairfax, and away she hurried to her post below. The cavalcade followed the sweeping of the drive, quickly turned the angle of the house, and I lost sight of it. Adele now petitioned to go down, but I took her on my knee and gave her to understand that she must not, on any account, think of venturing in sight of the ladies, either now or at any other time, unless expressly sent for, that Mr. Rochester would be very angry, etc. Some natural tears she shed on being told this, but as I began to look very grave, she consented at last to wipe them. A joyous stir was now audible in the hall, Gentlemen's deep tones and ladies' silvery accents blended harmoniously together, and distinguishable above all, though not loud, was the sonorous voice of the master of Thornfield Hall, welcoming his fair and gallant guests under his roof. Then light steps ascended the stairs and there was a tripping through the gallery and soft, cheerful laughs and opening and closing doors and, for a time, a hush. They are changing frocks, said Adele, who, listening attentively, had followed every movement, and she sighed. (sighs) At Maman's. She said, when there were people, I followed them everywhere, to the living room and to their bedrooms. I often watched the maids do their hair and dress the ladies. It was so fun. It's the way you learn. Don't you feel hungry, Adele? I asked. May we, mademoiselle? We haven't eaten for five or six hours was her reply. Well now, while the ladies are in their rooms, I will venture down and get you something to eat, I told her. And issuing from my asylum with precaution, I sought a back stairs which conducted directly to the kitchen.